Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Haley Wooden, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. On double duty with me is my BIV colleague, Albert Van Sanford, joining me on the mic in Tyler's absence. Thanks for stepping in. Thanks so much for having me. We have a lot to talk about today, including a monumental court case from the Supreme Court of Canada. It's been called the Free the Beer case, but it has wide-ranging implications potentially on a variety of products. Why don't you fill us in because we've been following this in the BIV newsroom. So Como was bringing a whole bunch of alcohol across the border from Quebec to uh, his home in New Brunswick, which is he's just about 160 kilometers from Quebec. And he had been doing this for years, a couple times a year. And he was caught by the RCMP going into New Brunswick and they confiscated his alcohol because there's a limit on how much alcohol you can bring over. Mm-hmm. Now, he took it to the Supreme Court and I, I don't know what you're, I'm curious as what your perspective on this was, but I think a lot of people were expecting the decision to come down the other way. And the way the decision went was they deemed this law constitutional. Provinces can limit the quantity of alcohol coming over the border. And and the reason for this decision I I found kind of interesting. In the Constitution, in in Article 21, it says that you, you should be able to bring products from one province to another freely. Now, the way the Supreme Court interpreted that was to mean that you can't place tariffs on it, but other limitations like uh, quantity restrictions are allowed. And and that's where the Supreme case really came down on this. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of debate as there already has been. I guess a quantity limit or restriction, it's not like a tariff, but it can sort of like at its core and spirit sort of function as one. If you're going to limit something to such an extent, I mean, it's not the same as a tariff in that you're increasing the cost for placing a duty on a good, but it does hamper the free flow of goods and free flow of movement in Canada. And that's something that the provinces have been trying to figure out for a long time. I don't think it bodes well. And I think based on a lot of the reaction from people not knowing that there were limits province to province uh, and, and feeling like they have a right to be able to go wherever to buy whatever, I, I think there's something there. And I, I, I find it difficult to believe that we're not going to be moving in that direction, maybe not today, but in the future. Well, it it really brings it home for the the Trans Mountain crisis we're having right now between our province and Alberta, because it it raises the question of what does constitute a tariff? Like you said, I mean, this could be considered a tariff, but the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that that it wasn't. While other restrictions and other laws that have been implemented in the past have been uh, deemed not constitutional because they acted enough like a tariff. So it, you, it is really getting in the weeds here. And it, you are sort of kind of going back and forth of what does a tariff actually mean? So I, I think you raise a real good point there. Now, interestingly, our colleague Glenn Corson has been looking at this. One of the sort of elements that came out of this court case could actually be of benefit to, say, BC wine producers and exporters, because part of it is that you can't unfairly impose tariffs or restrictions simply because you need to have a reason. For example, health might be an area where you say, okay, for whatever health reasons, there's concerns about moving maybe certain agricultural products. We're going to restrict it for this reason, but just because you can't do that. So now I think the BC wine industry is maybe looking at, okay, areas where our import capability has been limited, maybe that can actually be challenged. So an interesting business angle to this as well. 
Uh, yes, and in that uh, story by our colleague Glenn Kostrom, he uh, he talks to Colson litigation founder Shay Colson, who who says that uh, this is particularly interesting in the case of an Ontario law which specifically targets BC wineries, and and the big sort of takeaway Colson took from from the ruling is that laws can't be punitive; you can't be trying to punish another province which is sort of what he uh, thinks is the case in Ontario with their wine restriction. But that also has implications, again, for, like I said, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, because um, earlier this week, uh, the Alberta legislator put forward uh, a piece of legislation that will give the energy minister uh, the power to restrict um, oil exports, which by many is considered a punitive measure based on BC's actions to uh, study the impact of uh Dilbit spills into the uh, into Vancouver's coast. So, what, what what like I'm curious as to what you think is going to happen with this. Does this make the Alberta led proposed legislation unconstitutional? That's a really good question. And even before we saw this court ruling, there were concerns about whether what Alberta and Saskatchewan too are trying to do is in fact constitutional. I mean, they they can come up with a bill, they can table it, they perhaps can even pass it. But if they do take a step, that's when things might be challenged. My question, too, even if it does turn out to be unconstitutional, even if Alberta does turn off the tap, so to speak, we see our gas prices go up, we see the flow of oil restricted to B.C., it could take a long time to make its way through the courts. And I think that legislation is designed to put a lot of pressure in a short amount of time on BC for an over an issue that has a deadline coming up quickly. So even if it's unconstitutional, it doesn't mean a government might not, without knowing it's unconstitutional, put some pressure on and have an intended impact. Well, the length uh, of how long it's going to take to get through the courts is an interesting question. This case took took a bit to, to get through the courts. Yeah, and five years. Five years. And the <laughs> it's just we keep talking about what Kinder Morgan means for a constitutional crisis. And it's really interesting that the ruling of this case came down at this time because it's sort of compounding these concerns of what are the problems inherent in Canada's constitution when it comes to interprovincial trade? Because I I don't see other countries struggling with this the way that, that Canada does and the way that it's come in the spotlight, particularly now. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think this is a, a good time to transition from inter-Canada trade to maybe international trade and what's going on with NAFTA. Tariffs are certainly a major issue when it comes to that agreement. This is something you've been following for BIV. What's the latest on this? Well, yes, I, I'm a bit of a, a NAFTA junkie. <laughs> I, I do love uh, talking about international trade for some unknown reason. But uh, there was sort of a big hubbub uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, that everybody was reporting, everyone was going on TV saying, oh my God, we might have a deal, we might have a deal. And I had stories coming out in the newspaper talking about how we're maybe not too close to a deal. And I was concerned that by the time they, our readers saw the newspaper, it'd be uh, the news cycle would have moved too fast and it wouldn't be timely anymore. But the news cycle actually moved so fast that it went from being timely to untimely to timely again. And mm -hmm. the whole reason they thought they had a deal was because they had made major agreements on the auto sector, which doesn't particularly affect us out here in BC, but it's a big deal for places like Ontario and uh, in Quebec. And then over the weekend, it came out that, oh, maybe they weren't so, um, they hadn't had the auto sector figured out so much. And Trump had moved up how much he wanted to be made within the NAFTA countries. So, 
Even if the auto sector was figured out, there were still four other major disputes on the table that hadn't been. One of them being the dispute resolution mechanisms, the sunset clause, um, and a couple of others. So I was skeptical that they had reached a deal. And it turns out that uh, my skepticism was warranted. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it, it's hard to know. I think that a lot of people would like to see a deal secured. So anytime there's a whiff of that, and there hasn't often been a whiff that we're close <laughs> to a resolution, I can understand why people latch on to that. I don't know. I think it looks like, or at least the last I heard, could be a few weeks, but still a long ways apart. I think Mexican officials had previously come out and said, late May. So that gives us a month and a bit. Honestly, who knows? On our radio show, we're going to have Laura Dawson from the Canada Institute next week on to talk about where she sees this being. And I like her perspective because she's at the Canada Institute, but based in Washington. So she sort of has a good insight into what's going on south of the border and has a, a foot in both camps, so to speak. Yeah, she's sort of, uh, she's made her media rounds uh, talking about NAFTA. She also seems unsure because, uh, believe it or not, uh, Trump is not the most predictable person in the world. And shocking. Shocking, I know. Uh, newsflash for our listeners. Um, and, and he really does keep flipping back and forth on this issue. Um, he Before he had said he wanted an agreement, he was saying how the uh, how Canada and Mexico's immigration policies were unfair, actually linking the two immigration policies in one tweet, which um, I took as also a sign that it was concerning that the NAFTA deal could go forward. And mm. I, I mean, so there, the two stories in the piece, that's sort of like a summary of where we're at. Two stories in the newspaper, uh, one was about the possibility of a zombie NAFTA, which um, seems comes up and down in terms of a possibility of an outcome. And what that means is if Trump says, that's it, I'm done, pulls out of NAFTA, what happens? And the fact is nothing really happens with the exception of the stock market implications. But in terms of trading goods across border, nothing really happens. The Any changes to NAFTA have to, be, uh, have to go through the U.S. Congress first. Not only that, the Congress is really where trade agreements are determined. The, the Congress actually has to give the president the ability to negotiate these agreements. Right. So if Trump pulls out and it goes through a Congress that is pro-trade, whether and, and I think both a Republican and a Democratic Congress would be generally pro-trade, I, I have a hard time feeling that they would actually... Um, allow Trump to pull out an AFTA. What, what, what are your thoughts on that front? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a fair point. I I don't think many people, aside from a, a select group, are in favor of seeing the U.S. pull out an AFTA or seeing NAFTA crumble. There are a lot of people, including businesses, including lawmakers south of the border, who are very much in favor of this, and they understand that a lot is at stake. It has been a mutually beneficial agreement for Canada. And the U.S., we've talked about that before. There's been so much coverage on that as well. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm a little bit in the camp that a lot of what we hear from the president and some of the spokespeople are negotiating tactics because the messaging tends to change very, very quickly. It could be contradictory. So I, no, I, I don't Trump think we'll... Trump is contradicting I know, right? himself? I know. So I, I think... 
I think we're a ways away from seeing the U.S. pull out of NAFTA. I mean, we're at the point now in this timeline of the war on trade that the U.S. is talking about joining the TPP. I don't even know what to make of that, but we've come full circle. <laughs> that I, I, Not to jump down this rabbit hole, but I mean, uh, that's a whole nother. Do, do the TPP countries want him in with all this uncertainty he's creating after they just redid the whole deal to uh, account for the fact that the U.S. is no longer in it? And, and the sort of troubles they even have getting it ratified throughout the various countries, including our own here. I spent four weeks in Southeast Asia covering trade, and we're going to talk a little bit more about one of those stories after the break. But Australia has been lobbying very hard to get the U.S. back into that deal. And for all the uncertainty and instability there is in the States, it's not being watched with the same intensity as it is here in Canada. Obviously, we're part of NAFTA, so we have a lot at stake. It's being looked at differently. And there's also the proximity to China. So a lot of trade issues are sort of placed in this context of, are we going to get closer to China or are we going to get closer to the US? You don't get to choose and you don't get to say neither. It's sort of one or the other. And for a lot of these countries, despite differences with the US, it would be access to a massive market. And that would be a huge win. Huge win for sure. It's It definitely makes sense for them to want the uh, the US back in. But I, I don't see, I Australia has definitely voiced their eagerness, but I don't see that same eagerness from other countries. Do you? Not outwardly, no. Yeah. And, I, I and that's think key. It is key. And I think it, I think there was some impact, the fact that the US pulled out and that these countries scramble to get a deal together. And then there's the issue with Canada flip-flopping on the deal too. So, you know, I think if the U.S. comes rushing back, they're not necessarily going to be welcomed with open arms. But I think from an economic perspective, you can't deny what that access would mean to some of these economies and the legitimacy of being in a formal trade agreement with the states. It's hard to say. The, the, and, and in addition to that, to add another layer of complexity, uh, Trump's one of Trump's first big moves was to get out of TPP and his base loved it. They they applauded it, especially those people that helped him win in the Rust Belt. And my question is, the midterms are coming up. The main question facing uh, a lot of congressmen and, and senators as well and congresswomen is um do you support Trump? And I wonder how much that Trump base will still be there if Trump does something like like joining TPP that is so against what he ran on, that is so against what he sort of seems to be in the public? I think it's less about NAFTA and less about TPP and more about the appearance that yeah, Trump well. has lobbied hard for the interests of the American public, whatever you take that to mean and whatever his base takes that to mean, whatever he takes that to mean. Perceptions. So, you know, I think there is a way he could rejoin the TPP and sell that to his base in a way that makes him look like a hero. I don't know if that's a realistic or feasible path, but I can see it as an option. If anybody could sell something to the Trump base, it's Trump. <laughs> well put. We should leave it at that. We'll yeah, take I guess a, we'll leave it there. We'll take a short break. We could talk about NAFTA and TPP and trade and Trump for hours. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk about an LNG story that is not Trans Mountain, believe it or not. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. 
If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, and if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. That's 604-714-3600. Or you can check them out online at manningelliott.com. As I mentioned before that short break, I was away for four weeks reporting for BIV from Southeast Asia on an Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada media fellowship that I'm very honored to have received. And I'm very jealous of. (laughs) It's nice to have local stakeholders supporting journalism. And yes, it, it was an amazing opportunity. It allowed me to travel to four countries, one of which was Malaysia. My interest in Malaysia, in addition to Malaysia being one of these CPTPP countries, is that it's home to the state-owned oil and gas giant Petronas, which, of course, as listeners are going to be familiar with, they had a $36 billion Pacific Northwest LNG project slated for BC to take gas from the North Montney region and Petronas's other holdings and take it to market through a pipeline and through a facility based near Kitimat. Now, Petronas ultimately canceled that decision. So I thought, well, I'm in Malaysia. I'm in Kuala Lumpur. I'm going to visit the Petronas Towers anyway. Maybe they'll grant me an interview. And they did. I had the chance to speak to their CEO of Upstream. I got to ask the question whether the door is permanently closed to that project, among a many a great number of uh, other topics. And he weighed in quite liberally about what the company's intentions are in BC and Canada. That's in this week's print edition. So I I suggest everyone to go and check it out because it's quite lengthy. Yeah, it's it's a great Q&A with someone that uh, BC reporters don't exactly get a ton of access to all the time. And uh, it's a great story that I think you should go into about the the whole trip and about how you got this interview. But um, what I just wanted to say is just sort, sort of ground this in the political context a little bit. LNG was really what Christy Clark won the 2013 election on and saying that it was going to be a big industry and that she was going to uh, make a debt-free BC. And what I find really interesting about this is John Horgan is kind of seeming to signal that he thinks LNG is also a very important industry with the recent uh, industry tax breaks he gave. So I'm curious as to what you garnered with your uh, interview with. Is LNG really going to be the industry that saves BC regardless of if BC needs saving. Yeah, I I don't know what's going to happen and what role LNG is going to play in BC because you mentioned uh, Christy Clark's legacy and her essentially being a champion of LNG. You mentioned Horgan's coming around, mantle. yeah, to LNG under certain circumstances, but we have Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, who is steadfastly opposed to LNG as well and said he'll do everything to push government to a vote of non-confidence if another project moves forward. And at that point, it doesn't look like it would be a project from Petronas. It would probably be from LNG Canada. That's the one we're waiting on. But in terms of demand for LNG, I mean, the sense that I got, there's huge demand in Southeast Asia for clean energy, for energy, period. And when I say clean energy, I mean, one of the things that I learned about when I was over there, Myanmar, it's home to the smoggiest, dirtiest capital in the world. And by that, I mean, from a perspective of pollution, you have people burning coal in the winter in minus 40 degree weather to stay warm. And when they can't afford coal, they burn plastic. So some of the pollution and environmental challenges 
in that part of the world are massive. So there's a huge role for LNG to play. And Petronas is very serious about their commitments. They own the largest contiguous uh, holdings of natural gas in Canada. Canada is a major investment for them. So they're very serious about finding a way to get their gas to market. And that's going to mean very likely a pipeline. So if that can't get approved in BC, then no, we probably won't have an LG industry here. And two, I don't know what that's going to mean for, for big investors like Petronas. And and the environmental concerns about the um the Petronas plant weren't just about the upstream uh, pollution effects or anything like that. It was actually the location of the plant. So it it just sort of adds this extra layer of difficulty and of environmental concerns that these projects have to get through. Absolutely. And one of the the pieces that's not included in the Q&A, but I had the chance to speak to the CEO of Upstream at Petronas about was sort of environmental challenges. And they were quite keen to talk about what they've done in Malaysia with a a plant. It's called their Bintalu operation. They had to work with indigenous peoples in Malaysia. It's on an island, the island of Borneo, actually, which is home to a, a conservation area of wildlife. They have orangutans, there's sea life. So it, it, it's similar, I guess, in the types of challenges they face. Regulatory-wise, I think it does differ quite a bit from British Columbia and from Canada. But that was something the company kept bringing up, too. So I think they're aware of that. In the Q&A, too, uh, he also mentioned that they've regrouped and done a lot of thinking. So I'm sure whatever is down the line for them, it's going to have had a, a lot of thought and strategy put into it. Yeah, and um, I'm sorry, I'm just, you see me trying to look up something here. I'm pretty sure I've heard uh, our resource reporter, Nelson Bennett, uh, talk about the Andrew Weaver um, disagreement with LNG. And I'm pretty sure he's talked about how they use, Andrew Weaver is using different numbers than the province. So I'm curious to if that riff is ever going to be repaired, if if they're coming at it with a different set of numbers and really a different set of facts to, to this issue. Yeah, I don't know. But from any time I've spoken to Mr. Weaver, and we've had him on our show, and we've had him on specifically to talk about LNG, unless he has a big change of heart, uh, I I don't think this issue is going away from him. And in fact, he has even said his reputation's on the line, and that this is an issue uh, he's willing to sort of stake his career on. He's not going to change his mind, if only because of his because of his base. So we'll see. I mean, this is a complex issue. Anything can happen, as we know, but it's going to be one to follow. And that only matters for, for a few reasons. I mean, uh, Andrew Weaver, say say the NDP goes through with some sort of LNG plan. They don't necessarily need green votes. The Liberal Party is very pro-LNG. They could grab a couple votes from them. The problem is, if they do that, will Andrew Weaver put up a, a confidence motion and will the liberals join the greens in voting them out of confidence so so the political ramifications of this really can't be understated i don't think no very true it's going to give us uh, an infinite amount of material for future podcasts yeah which, tell you which is always good we, we we're, we're always running out of things to talk about and write about <laughs> uh. i know no that's uh well, today even today was a huge news day for, a, for the end of the week thursday you're kind of hoping it would be 
ramping down, but nope. No, that's true. I know. And uh, even price of oil breaking records too. We haven't seen since 2014. There's a ton to talk about in, and just in business news, not let alone other news. We're not going to get to any of the work that we need to because we're just going <laughs> to now talk about oil prices. Yeah, no, there you go. Well, we're going to leave it at that, I think, for today, but we'll be back next week with more business news as we always are. Albert, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I love talking about this stuff. This podcast has been brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. You can, of course, find stories on all the topics we've spoken about at BIV.com and in our weekly print edition. You can find past podcasts available on iTunes as well. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>